I looked, and it's been like four months since I preached, and the last time I preached, I preached on the first half of the chapter, and today I'd like to cover the second half of the chapter. So um, we'll do a quick review as we go back, just to refresh your memory, and maybe some of you weren't here the last time. But the main focus is going to be on verses 12 through 22. In 490 B.C., the Athenian army won a decisive victory against the Persians in Greece on the plain of Marathon. Uh, it's ancient history, so we don't have super accurate numbers, but from best estimates, the Athenians were probably outnumbered by somewhere in the ballpark of two to one by the Persian army that had invaded. However, at the end of the battle... It's estimated that the Persians had suffered some 6,400 dead, while the Athenians had only lost 192. And according to legend, there was a runner named Pheidippides who ran some 25 miles from the plain of Marathon to Athens to announce the victory. And as he entered the city, he cried out, We won, and immediately collapsed and fell over dead. Today... There's a 26.2-mile road race that is very popular amongst runners that's called the Marathon. It's named after that legendary event. Well, the text we have before us as we begin in verse 12 begins with a runner as well. And there are some similarities here. This runner comes from the battlefront to bring a message. But there's a little bit of a twist compared to that of Pheidippides because... In this case, it's not a message of victory. It's a message of defeat. And there are deaths that ensue, but it's not the runner who dies. It's Eli and his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas. So what I'd like you to do, if you would, I think we're going to read the entire chapter. It's a bit lengthy, but I think it would be good just to get the background for what's going on here because it will help us to understand what is happening when this runner brings this distressing and disturbing message back to the people of Israel? So if you would stand with me, and I'm going to read the entire chapter of 22 verses in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And Samuel's words came to all Israel. Now that's a significant statement. We'll come back to that. But then the narrative begins, Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped at Ebenezer while the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines lined up in battle formation against Israel, and as the battle intensified, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who struck down about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the troops returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Let's bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh. Then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh to bring back the ark of the covenant of the Lord of armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord entered the camp, all the Israelites raised such a loud shout that the ground shook. And the Philistines heard the sound of the war cry and asked, What's this loud shout in the, Hil in the Hebrews' camp? 
When the Philistines discovered that the ark of the Lord had entered the camp, they panicked. A God has entered their camp. They said, woe to us. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us. Who will rescue us from these magnificent gods? These are the gods that slaughtered the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Show some courage and be men, Philistines. Otherwise, you'll serve the Hebrews just as they served you. Now be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and each man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell. And the ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And that brings us to our text this morning. That same day, a Benjaminite man ran from the battle and came to Shiloh. His clothes were torn, and there was dirt on his head. And when he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair beside the road waiting because he was anxious about the ark of God. When the man entered the city to give a report, the entire city cried out. And Eli heard the outcry and asked, Why this commotion? And the man came to Eli and reported, at that time, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes didn't move because he couldn't see. And the man said to Eli, I'm the one who came from the battle. I fled from there today. What happened, my son? Eli asked. And the messenger answered, Israel has fled from the Philistines, and also there was a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are both dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off the chair by the city gate, since he was old and heavy, and his neck broke, and he died. And Eli had judged Israel 40 years. And Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. When she heard the news about the capture of God's ark and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she collapsed and gave birth because her labor pains came on her. As she was dying, the, woman taking, the women taking care of her said, Don't be afraid, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, referring to the capture of the ark of God, and to the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. The glory has departed from Israel, she said, because the ark of God has been captured. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. As we read many of these Old Testament narratives, and even in the New Testament, but particularly in the Old Testament, uh, I think it's so easy for us to just bypass and read it and treat it as if it was a story that happened so long ago. And, and we don't ever really stop to put ourselves in the middle of what was going on. And I think it's especially hard in a case like this for us to really grasp the mental and the psychological impact that these events would have had on Israel in that time. You see, in our day... We live in a totally different kind of society than they lived in. We have concepts in our country today of separation of church and state, of freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, and we live in a rather pluralistic society. It's a 
representative democracy. But in their day and time, that wasn't the case. They lived in a, under a theocratic government. And under that theocracy, the national life, the social life, the religious life, those things were all deeply intertwined with one another. And so when they were defeated in the first battle, we might ask the same question, but I don't think we would ask it in the way they ask it when they said, why did the Lord defeat us today? They associated that with the Lord. You and I might say, yeah, our country got beat, but we know why, because we've turned our back on God by and large, and by and large, this is just God's judgment on a sinful nation. But for those folks, it meant more than that. It was, why did the Lord defeat us? We're his people, and God has handed us a defeat. And at the same time, when the ark was captured, the ark was not just a symbol of the religious life. It was a symbol of their national identity as well because all of those things were entwined together. And so they asked the question, and it was a good question, but they didn't come up with a very good answer, did they? And so where did they go wrong in this? And again, I'm just kind of going back and reviewing a little bit so we get the setting for what we're going to look at today. But where did they go wrong? Well, if you go back to chapter 3 and get a little bit of a background here of what's happened, um, it says in verse 1, the boy Samuel served the Lord in Eli's presence, and in those days the word of the Lord was rare and prophetic visions were not widespread. And then if you jump down to verse 20, we read that all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was a confirmed prophet of the Lord, and the Lord continued to appear in Shiloh because there he revealed himself to Samuel by his word, and Samuel's words came to all Israel. So there was a prophet, and he was widely recognized but I think that statement at the beginning of chapter 3 and verse 1 is telling. Because, you see, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And even though the people recognized that Samuel was a prophet of the Lord, we have no indication here that they ever consulted Samuel before taking this foolish course of action. And there's a little lesson for us here, I think, because... I want to ask you this morning, is the word of the Lord rare in your life or is it common? How much time do you spend in the scriptures? How much time do you spend with the word of the Lord? Because when hard times come and tough decisions come, just like for these folks, if the word of the Lord was rare, their default position was to depend on their own human wisdom and understanding. And it's the same for us today. If you and I live lives where the word of the Lord plays a very low priority in our lives, when we have to make important decisions, default position is we don't even think about this book. But we ought to be so ingrained in this book that our default position is what does the Lord have to say to us? And that's what got these people in trouble. And you see, what's... What else is interesting here is that little phrase in the very first verse of chapter 4, and Samuel's words came to all Israel, that's the last time we hear anything about Samuel until chapter 7. 
Now, if you go back and read the entire section up to this point in 1 Samuel, in chapters 1 through 3, Samuel is a very prominent figure throughout chapters 1 through 3. But when we get to chapter 4, he disappears from the scene until chapter 7. And there was somewhere near a 20-year time frame that passed there. And so, again, the, the people made this decision, and it was the leaders who made the decision to bring the ark into battle, and it goes terribly because the second battle is far worse than the first. They lost 4,000 people in the first battle, but how many did they lose in the second battle? Well, chapter 4 and verse 10 tells us that the slaughter was very severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell. Again, that's hard for you and I to comprehend in our day and time. 30,000 people die in one battle. But not only that, the ark has been captured. And so this runner comes with a devastating report. And he comes from the battlefront, and we're told that his clothes were torn, there was dirt on his head. Well, in that day and time, having torn clothes and dirt on your head was a sign of deep distress. It was a sign of mourning. It was a sign of, of bad things, okay? Uh, this was not something that they would have probably expected. The people in that day, because they had taken the ark to the battle, they thought, hey, we brought God with us this time. He's surely going to act on our behalf because we're his people. And when they see the runner coming with dirt on his head and his clothes torn, what in the world is going on? What has happened? You see, this is something that we've seen and we do see other places in Scripture because in Joshua chapter 7, remember after the battle of Jericho where there was such a decisive victory, they were defeated at Ai. And we read in verse 6 of chapter 7, Then Joshua, the leader, tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening, as did the elders of Israel. They all put dust on their heads. After the death of King Saul in 2 Samuel chapter 1, on the third day, a man with torn clothes and dust on his head came from Saul's camp, and when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. So as this runner approaches, anyone who could see, even from a distance, would know that the report was not going to be good. This was going to be a bad report. But of course, Eli doesn't see any of this. Because we're told in verse 15 that he was blind. Uh, literally, that statement says his eyes stood. Okay, so um, probably means they weren't moving much. Uh, literally, in the Hebrew, it means they didn't work. Okay? <laughs> I mean, they just, his eyes had failed. And they didn't have cataract surgery back then and things like that. So his eyes had failed now, your translation might say that he was sitting by the road watching. Uh, mine says waiting. Um, I suspect that maybe waiting captures the idea a little bit better. And he might have been trying to watch. I don't know, but he couldn't see much. If he he might have been trying to see, but apparently he didn't see much because we're told that the runner approaches, and apparently the runner goes right by Eli. 
Now, it's really tempting to stop right here and make a spiritual comparison between the physical blindness of Eli and the spiritual blindness of the entire priesthood and the nation at large. Because I think there, you could make a case for some symbolism here. But at any rate, the runner goes by Eli and runs into the town, and Eli apparently is unaware of the report until he hears in verse 14 this outcry, and he asks, why this commotion? What's going on? What's all the uproar about? And so the runner returns and comes, and I, again, I don't know, maybe the runner took a different route into town. Maybe he didn't go by Eli, but I suspect he came by the road, and there probably wasn't a lot of roads in and out of the town heading in the direction he was coming from. So it kind of seems like maybe the runner just bypassed Eli. And when you stop and think about it, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because how old is Eli here? He's 98 years old. He's an old man. His sons have been killed. The ark of God has been captured. He's a priest. Uh, would you want to be the person to deliver that kind of message to a 90-year-old man, 98-year-old man? I'm suspecting that this runner sees Eli, and Eli doesn't see him, and the runner says, yeah, he'll get the message. I'm going to go on into town and deliver the bad news. But Eli hears the uproar. His hearing hadn't failed. His eyes had, but apparently his hearing hadn't. And Eli says, what's going on? And the man comes, and he says, what? Uh, well, I'm the one that came from the battle. I fled from, from there today. Is that what Eli wanted to hear? He's not asking, were you at the battle and did you leave? He's wanting to know what happened. And so he asked him point blank, what happened, my son, Eli said. And the messenger answered, Israel has fled from the Philistines. Really? weren't expecting that. Maybe he was, though, because there's a hint here that we'll look at in a minute. And also there was a great slaughter among the people, and your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are both dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Now, when he mentioned the ark of God, that's when Eli falls backward off the chair breaks his neck, and dies. So it's kind of sad when you stop and think about it. Here is Eli. His two sons have been killed in battle, and it seems like he's one of the last people to know about it. Pretty sad, isn't it? But what's really surprising to us as we look at this text, it doesn't seem to be the death of his sons that he's most concerned about, does it? Because the devastating news hasn't got anything to do with his sons necessarily, but it's when he mentioned the ark of God. When he mentioned the ark of God. Now, based on some of the events that had happened previously in 1 Samuel, we would have certainly expected that his concern would have been for his sons. We're told in the... Uh, back in verse 13, that he was anxious about the ark of God. Your translation may say his heart trembled for the ark of God. Your translation might also say he feared for the ark of God. But at any rate, he was stressed over the ark, and you would think he would have been stressed over his sons because on at least two occasions he'd been warned about bad news concerning his sons. Flip back to chapter 2. 
27. Here is some unnamed man of God. And it says in verse 27, A man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Didn't I reveal myself to your forefathers' family when they were in Egypt and belonged to Pharaoh's palace? Out of all the tribes of Israel, I chose your house to be my priest, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your forefathers' family all the Israelite food offerings. Why then do all of you despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the place of worship? You see, if we were to back up even further in verse 12 and down through verse 17, we would find that Eli's sons were greedy when it came to the sacrifices. They had no respect for the way God had intended for sacrifices to be offered. In fact, verse 17 says, The servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. It wasn't that it just blew it off. They literally treated it with contempt. And not only that, but in verse 22, it is told, we are told that uh, Eli had heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they were sleeping with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. These were not folks who had just slipped up. These were folks who were in open, serious rebellion against God. And so when we pick up again in verse 29, this man of God asks Eli, why then do all of you, he's talking about the whole priesthood here, why do you all despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require to place of worship? You, Eli, you have honored your sons more than me by making yourselves fat with the best part of all the offerings of my people Israel. Now, Eli actually had rebuked his sons, hadn't he? If you go back to verse 23, uh, Eli said to his sons, Why are you doing these things? I've heard about your evil actions from all these people. No, my sons, the news I hear, uh, the news I hear the Lord's people spreading is not good. If one person sins against another, God can intercede for him. But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to their father since the Lord intended to kill them. So here we have Eli being warned of what's going to happen to his family. And in fact, in verse 34, we're told very specifically that this will be the sign that will come to you concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Both of them will die on the same day. Now, you think about that. If, if you had been told that about two of your sons, and those two sons go off to war together, wouldn't that cause you a little bit of stress and concern? I mean, war is kind of risky business last time I checked. People get killed in war. And yet, we don't see that Eli's concern is for his family, for whatever reason. But that wasn't the only thing, because if you go over to chapter 3, in verses 11 through 14, we read, 
of the Lord coming to Samuel, and the Lord said to Samuel, I'm about to do something in Israel that will cause everyone who hears about it to shudder. On that day, I will carry out against Eli everything I said about his family from beginning to end. I told him that I'm going to judge his family forever because of the iniquity he knows about. His sons are cursing God, and he has not stopped them. Therefore, I have sworn to Eli's family, the iniquity of Eli's family will never be wiped out, either by sacrifice or by offering. And so, Eli comes to Samuel, and he says, hey, what did the Lord have to say to you? Samuel doesn't want to tell him. But, eventually he does, because Eli says in verse 17, don't hide it from me. May God punish you and do so severely if you hide anything from me that he told you. I don't know about you, but I find Eli's response in verse 18 to be incredible. After Samuel tells them what's going to happen, what is Eli's response in verse 18? He is the Lord. Let him do what he thinks is good. If you were Samuel and you just told Eli what was going to happen, and he says, he's the Lord. Let him do what he thinks is good. Samuel had to be like, what? Excuse me? Say what? Did you hear what I just said? Eli just, now I don't know how he said it. Maybe he said, he's the Lord. Let him do what he thinks is good. He might have said it that way. But it seems that it comes across as, yeah, he's the Lord. Uh, he'll do whatever he wants to do. As if Eli wasn't even engaged. And this isn't the only place we see this kind of thing in this text. It appears that Eli, whatever the case, was not a very proactive kind of individual. And he is specifically told, and this is the thing that just stands out, you have honored your sons more than me. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and anyone who loves their son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You love your family more than you love the Lord, you're not worthy of him. This is a message that I think is needed in our day. Uh, I'm sure that all of us know of people who have virtually built their entire existence around their kids. And, you know, I'm all in favor of strong families. Don't get me wrong. I really am. But family can become an idol. And it seems like that's what was happening here. Eli's sons didn't get a pass just because they were family. But he gave them a pass, it would appear. He rebuked them. But they didn't listen. Kind of makes you wonder what kind of household they grew up in. Was Eli one of those parents that, and, you know, we've all seen this too, the parent that yells at their kids 20 times and the kids just don't even pay attention. 21 times, well, maybe they're getting serious now. You know, was that the kind of household? I don't know. I don't want to speculate too much. But I will tell you one thing. When your kids are not taught to respect authority in childhood, they're probably not going to respect authority in adulthood either. And here, Eli's sons 
just blew him off. They didn't care what he had to say. It doesn't appear. And so, again, Eli has rebuked his sons, but he didn't go far enough. He should have done more. And God rebukes Eli because of it, and he's going to judge Eli. And so, as we read the text again, Eli's major concern doesn't seem to be his family for whatever reason. We don't know why. I can't speculate on all the reasons. But his main concern is the ark. Why was that? Why would he be so concerned and so stressed about the ark? It's almost like he had a premonition that something bad was going to happen, isn't it? Because it says in verse 13 that he was anxious or his heart trembled for the ark of God. Now, there was some ancient history of the ark being carried into battle, wasn't there? You go back to the battle of Jericho, and you find that when we look at the battle of Jericho, God had told Israel to take the ark and to march around the city one time a day for six days, and then on the seventh day, they marched around the city seven times. They shouted, and the walls fell down. So when the elders of Israel come up with this plan, they were probably thinking back to what had occurred at the Battle of Jericho. But God hadn't told them to do that. They just took that on themselves. And from Eli's standpoint, I suspect Eli knew this wasn't really quite right. He suspicioned that this wasn't really the way things should be done. Uh, the ark had been at Shiloh for over 360 years. The, the tabernacle, back in, when the tabernacle was built in the book of Exodus, it was built for mobility purposes, to be moved around. But once the Israelites settled in Canaan, then the tabernacle became uh, very much a uh, sort of a permanent place. And for over 360 years, the ark and the tabernacle was stationed at Shiloh. So in all of Eli's lifetime, he had probably never heard of anything like this. They had probably never done something like this. Eli suspects something isn't right. But he didn't do anything about it, apparently. We don't know. We're not told that he did anything about it. Could he have stopped it? I would think so. But he didn't seem to try. Doesn't, no indication that he did. But he was stressed over it. And he was worried about it. To the point that when he hears the report, it's the last straw. And he falls off his chair, breaks his neck, and dies. Well, something that I think is, again, I don't want to make too much of it, but I think it's telling in the way the author writes, is the way that the author speaks of Eli when something significant is about to happen. Flip back to uh, chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 9. Okay, so this is speaking of the birth of Samuel. And it says, On one occasion Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh, and the priest Eli was doing what? He was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Then you go over to 4.13 where we're at today, and when the messenger arrived, what is Eli doing? Sitting on his chair beside the road waiting. 
even in his death, he falls off his chair. It kind of gives you the impression that Eli liked to sit around and not do a whole lot. <laughs> now, I don't want to read too much into that, but that's the way the author describes Eli. He's sitting on his chair. But at any rate, he dies. He breaks his neck. But he's not the only one that dies on this occasion because Phineas' wife, upon hearing the news, she immediately goes into labor. And that would normally, for most women, and for particularly for an Israelite woman, that would have been a time of great joy, expectation. And those of you that have had children, you probably didn't enjoy the labor, but there was great expectation that came with it, and there was joy that you looked forward to at the end of it. But that's not the case with her. Look at what it says in verse 20. She was dying, and the women said, Don't be afraid. You've given birth to a son. Now, sons were really important to the Israelites in that day. But how does she react? She didn't even respond or pay attention. And she named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. The glory has departed. I don't know how much this played into her death, but she was depressed. She knew that would she survive, she had lost her husband, she had lost her father-in-law, she lost her brother-in-law. She was going to be facing a world that she didn't want to live in. The whole religious life of the nation had been turned upside down. She didn't want any part of it. And I don't know how much that may have played into her death, but it kind of leads us to think that that may have been a factor. And she dies, and she names the child Ichabod. So here's Ichabod. He's born as an orphan. Doesn't have a father. Doesn't have a grandfather. Doesn't have an uncle. Probably doesn't have a grandmother. She's probably long gone. Not only that, but he's born into a dark era in Israel's history. Uh, one commentator said that this was probably the darkest time in Israel's history since the time of their slavery in Egypt. I don't know if that's a fair assessment or not, but it was not a good time. The ark was in captivity. The religious life of the people was just in shambles. The tabernacle at Shiloh would very soon be destroyed, probably by the invading Philistine army. And Israel is in bad, bad straits. And here Ichabod is born into this situation. And not only that, but he's stuck with a name. Now, I don't know if anybody has named their child Ichabod, but it probably didn't have to, if they do, it probably doesn't have the same meaning to us today as it did back then. But the name Ichabod meant where is the glory or the glory has departed. And so can you imagine what it was like for Ichabod growing up? You know, kids can be pretty cruel. So look at Ichabod. Was he the brunt of their jokes? Because after all, they knew what his father was like because it, we're told that it was open sin that his father was engaged in. He was sleeping with the women at the tent of meeting. 
when people would come to offer a sacrifice, his father would just reach in and grab the meat raw, and if they didn't want to give it to him, he'd say, oh, I'll just take it by force. So, you know, now Israel's suffering in the backwash of all of that, and people would have known, you're, you're Phineas's son. I don't know what that meant. I don't know what it was like for Ichabod growing up as an orphan. Uh, we don't know much about Ichabod after that. The only thing that I've been able to come up with is we do find in 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 3 that he had at least one brother. So apparently he wasn't totally alone in life. But I'm pretty sure he didn't have a good life growing up. And in many ways... Ichabod is symbolic of where Israel was at at that time because Ichabod was an orphan and Israel had been orphaned from the God who had chosen and nurtured her for hundreds of years. And now she was alone like a ship drifting on the sea in a dangerous world and no sense of direction. You see, the ripple effects of this hard-hearted, calloused, spiritual leadership ranged deep and far and wide. And they had ripple effects that reached out way beyond the people that were involved. That's one of the reasons that we take church discipline seriously here. Uh, I'm going to tell you, it's not fun. If, if anybody likes that, you're, I, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> I mean, I don't even, I don't have no, no words if somebody enjoys that sort of thing, because I sure don't. But the reason is because if we allow sin to fester, it will have devastating and far-reaching effects within the church, even up to and including the withdrawal of God's protection and blessing. That's what happened to Israel. The glory had departed. At least that's what Phineas's wife said, right? So was she right? Had the glory departed from Israel? When the ark was captured, is that when the glory left? Well, in one sense, the glory had long since departed, hadn't it? I think we could safely say that the glory did not depart because the ark had been captured, but the ark had likely been captured because the glory had already departed. That was the result of God's glory being withdrawn, not the cause of it. Does that make sense? Turn with me to Psalm chapter 78. begin reading in uh, verse 56. Speaking of Israel here, the psalmist says, but they rebelliously tested the Most High God, for they did not keep his decrees. They treacherously turned away like their ancestors. They became warped like a faulty bow. They enraged him with their high places and provoked his jealousy with their carved images. 
God heard and became furious. He completely rejected Israel. He abandoned the tabernacle at Shiloh. That's where we're at in our text this morning. The tent where he resided among mankind, he gave up his strength to captivity and his splendor, or the word in your Bible may say glory, to the hand of a foe. He surrendered his people to the sword because he was enraged with his heritage. Years later, the prophet Jeremiah issued a similar warning in Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 12. The prophet says, But return to my place that was at Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first. See what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Now because you have done all these things, this is the Lord's declaration, and because I have spoken to you time and time again, but you wouldn't listen and I have called to you, but you wouldn't answer. What I did to Shiloh, I will do to the house that bears my name, the house in which you trust, the place that I gave you and your ancestors. I will banish you from my presence, just as I banished all your brothers and all the descendants of Ephraim. In Revelation chapter 2, the church of Ephesus is warned that unless they repent, the Lord will remove the lampstand from their presence. So had the glory departed? Yes. But in another sense, no. Because, you see, God's glory will never depart from himself. It is inherent in who he is. It is God cannot lose his glory. Uh, neither you nor I nor anybody can take God's glory away from him. Isaiah chapter 42 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory or my to another or my praise to idols. If you go back to our text in 1 Samuel, we get a glimpse of that in the next chapter, in chapter 5. In verses 1 to, through 5, after the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod and brought it into the temple of Dagon, their God, and placed it next to his statue. When the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. What does the apostle say? There's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Reminiscent here, isn't it? So what did they do? They took Dagon returned him to his place. He couldn't help himself, but they helped him out. They stood him back up. When they got up the next morning, there was Dagon falling with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. But this time, Dagon's head and both of his hands were broken off and lying on the threshold. You see, God's glory will not be shared with another. And he wasn't going to share it with Dagon. And he's not going to share it with the sinful people. But God's glory remains intact. 
Under the Old Covenant, in Exodus chapter 40 and then again in Second Chronicles chapter 7, we read two times when the glory of God descends, the first into the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the second into Solomon's temple. And the glory of the Lord comes down and fills the tabernacle and fills the temple. But under the New Covenant, we have a far greater revelation of God's glory than anything in the Old Covenant because John said the Word, and who was the Word? Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You see, in our text back in uh, 1 Samuel, the, the text we looked at last time tells us that uh, in the case of the ark in chapter 4 and verse 4, that the Lord of armies was enthroned between the cherubim. But you see, today the glory of God resides in the one to whom the ark pointed our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the full manifestation of God's glory. And yet there was a time when to humanity it probably didn't appear that way. Flip with me and we'll, we'll look at one or two more texts. But flip with me to Mark chapter 15. Begin reading in verse 33. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? If you and I had been there that day, we would have surely thought the glory had departed. If you were one of the disciples they surely thought that the glory had departed. But was that really the case? No. No, not at all. It wasn't the end of the story. Luke chapter 24, you don't necessarily have to turn there if you don't want to. But Luke chapter 24, one of my favorite accounts in all of Scripture after the resurrection, uh, you have the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they are just distraught. They are depressed. They're downtrodden. And they're walking along, and this stranger comes up alongside and says, what's, what's wrong? And they're like, are you the only person in town that hasn't heard what's happened? And they're like, and he, obviously it's Jesus, but they don't know it. 
He says, what things? What, what's happened? And they tell him. And then in verse 25 of Luke chapter 24, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He had to suffer and then enter into his glory. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what's going on in your life. But maybe part of you thinks that the glory has departed. And maybe it's due to your own fault. Maybe there's been sin in your life. Maybe you're living in the backwash of somebody else's sin. Maybe life has just been tough and you don't see the glory like you once did. Well, I'm here to tell you that if you reject the glory of Christ, you will suffer heartache, you will suffer discouragement, you will suffer distress in your life, but if you properly seek his glory, it is a transforming thing. Second Corinthians chapter two or chapter three and verse eighteen says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There may be times when God's glory seems to be hidden. The heavens are brass. But God's glory has never departed from himself. There may be times when we do things and God withdraws a sense of his presence and discipline. And if you're a child of God, that can happen. Many times those who are living in disobedience are the most fearful. Because they don't have that sense of security, that sense of comfort and peace, and that sense and that realization of the glory of God. And that's intentional if you're God's child. It's intentional to draw you back to him. But I'm here to tell you, if you turn to him, that glory can be restored in your life, in your experience. But God's glory is always, always intact. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that there is much in your word that we struggle to grasp, and then let alone we struggle to live it. We struggle to work it out properly with its right application in our lives. Our Father, we recognize that we are a blessed people. We have been given the supreme blessing of being able to behold by the eyes of faith the one in whom your fullness resided, the one who became flesh and who in him dwelt all the fullness and all the glory. And Lord, we many times fail to take advantage of the truth in our lives. We fail to take stock of it. We fail to apply it, and we ask your forgiveness. But help us, Lord, to always seek your honor, your glory, and see you for who you really are, the God who is glorious above anything we could ever imagine. 
And may that have a transforming effect in our lives. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.